You can see it all around you in modern media, the countless serial killer documentaries, the nightly news. Many many Hollywood movies and more, but it's not just the modern era. As a matter of fact, if anything, we are still somewhat more restrained than we were in centuries past. The gladiatorial matches of ancient Coliseums alone speak volumes about the long history of humanity's fascination with violence. Now, such fascination doesn't end with the conclusion of the violent action. Around the world, the locations of the greatest violence are often preserved for education, remembrance, and sometimes even personal enjoyment. While battlefields are generally the most prominent example of such preservation, there are plenty of structures standing around the world that also reflect such grim events in history. So how does this tie into our topic du jour? Various psychologists often point to violent events to explain why hauntings permeate locations for many years after the physical evidence of such evidence has faded away or been covered over. Such hauntings have been spoken of for centuries, with stories as old as Plenty the Younger's Tale from the first century that speaks of an Athenian villa, Athenian villa haunted by a chained man. While there are many such stories and locations to choose from, tonight we will focus on a handful of locations from well, here in the United States. If our international crowd is hoping for international locations, let's just say that we have enough that we'll be doing probably a second Murder House episode in the not-too-distant future. And if, if you know of one, drop it in the chat so we can check it out later, and I'll add it to my research list. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, tonight, focusing here in the United States, where infamous murders and hauntings do go hand-in-hand. All right, so this one is the Hex Murder House in Shrewsbury, Pennsylvania. What did he do my thing? I broke it. You did. He doesn't like the handle in the back. I do. Sorry. Small hand. All right, so we're going to start in the east, just a few hours north of Richmond, where we find Shrewsbury, Pennsylvania. The town situated just off of I-83 between Baltimore, Maryland, and York, Pennsylvania. Throughout its history, Shrewsbury has been a relatively small and quiet community, though there was a stretch in the late 1920s that brought unwelcome mayhem to the community's doorstep. Before the mayhem arrived, for over 100 years, powwowing had always been seen as a common practice, not to be confused with the Native American ceremonial practices, however. Powwowing was actually common amongst the Pennsylvania German and Dutch communities. And and it was used to provide cures for illness, protection from evil forces, and removal of curses. Both magic practitioners carried good luck charms, amulets, and uh, relied, relied, relied heavily on prayer and ritual in their daily life. They blended customs of the old and the new world to form their distinct identity. Though there were many religious differences among the German settlers, folk magic was the common tradition that united them all. For a large number of settlers, folk magic was intertwined with their Christian beliefs. Running opposite of Powwowing was hexery. Practitioners of the so-called black magic drew their power from the devil and other ungodly sources. The hex doctors, as they were called, harassed their neighbors and committed criminal acts using their supernatural abilities. Hex doctors were believed to target their victims in a plethora of ways. Since the community was based around farming society, many of the hex doctors' attacks would be directed at livestock and crops. They were often blamed when cows stopped producing milk, when healthy animals died without warning, or when crops failed 
produced. Health doctors also went out to people, allegedly causing illnesses. Many people also believe that they had been hexed when their lives seemed to be filled with bad luck. From the perspective of the commons, the powwowers and hex doctors often work against one another, with them stuck in the middle and their curses and their cures. So how did these common folk combat the curses and evil? A powwower named George, excuse me, Don George Pullman brought forth a solution in 1819. He compiled a book of charms, prayers, remedies, and folk medicine and called it Der Longwerden Grund, or The Long Lost Friend. The book became extremely popular, and buyers were told that they would be protected from harm as long as they carried the book. In the front of the book, an inscription read, Whoever carries this book with him is safe from all enemies, visible and invisible, and whoever has this book with him cannot die without he the holy corpse of Jesus, nor drown in any water, nor burn up in any fire, nor can any unjust sentence be cast upon him till help me God. Naturally, the community loved this book. Most towns folks catch the copy. Of course, an opposing book also came into circulation known as the Sixth and Seventh Books of Moses, which contained instructions on conjuring and controlling demons. Text doctors all around began to acquire copies of the book, but nearly all it was said to be extremely dangerous and could be even fatal. While this may sound outlandish to many today, it was all too real for the people of southern Pennsylvania just over a century ago. However, things changed dramatically in 1928 when Ron Palmer's hex murder. A hex scare gripped the region, turning the authorities and general public against powwowing. According to, or sorry, after the murder, folk magic came to be considered a threat to the people of the area and turning neighbor against neighbor as long-standing traditions became associated with evil. Folk magic practitioners were suddenly seen as extremely dangerous and a force to be reckoned with. Soon, there was little room for superstition, and hex dogs grew from the modern Pennsylvania as the folk medicine used for centuries was now being seen as a false treatment that kept people from getting the medical care they so desperately needed. And for those who are not familiar, this is Nico. The story of the Rottweimer and hex murders began with a man named John Weimer, a well-known powwowler. Weimer had an excellent reputation in York County, yet despite his success, he was always believed he always believed he had a large shadow hanging over him. One day, as he left the cigar factory where he worked, a rabid dog ran towards him and his co-workers. Plummeyer approached the beast and spoke a spell to it. Allegedly, the animal foaming at the mouth ceased, and it became subdued. He was even able to pet his pet. Co-workers were amazed and thankful, but after this incident, his luck began to change. He soon fell ill and started to believe that as a hex doctor uh, had placed a curse upon him out of jealousy of his healing power. Since it was thought that one could not remove a curse unless you know who placed it upon you, John was doomed by the hex to start wasting away. However, uh, John had a feeling he knew who had hexed him. His great grandfather Jacob, since he could not fight a spirit's text, a, <clears throat> a spirit's text, he decided to move away from his home, which seems to after he moved away, he met a woman named Lily and married her shortly thereafter. The couple had two children, but both died in infancy. These tragedies led John to believe that his hex was still alive and well, and he became suspicious of everyone around him, including his wife. 
Don's accusation caused Lily to fear for her life, and she consulted a lawyer and obtained the judge's order to commit John to a mental hospital. But he didn't stay in that facility for long. Forty-eight days after he was committed, John disappeared. He turned up at the cigar factory where he used to work. He was determined to find the cause of his curse and even more so to find out who placed it upon him. John turned to Nellie Knoll, the River Witch of Marietta, for help. He identified John's enemy as a member of the Ryanmeyer family. He asked which family member she told him to hold out his hand. When John looked down at, the, at his palm, the face of Nelson Ryanmeyer appeared on his clammy skin. Nellie started to remove the curse. Then stated that to remove the curse, he needed to take Fraunheimer's copy of The Long Lost Friend and a lot of his hair and bury them six feet underground. John and another man went to Nelson's door asking to speak with him. Nelson allowed them to stay the night as it was late when they arrived. However, when they were there, John and his compatriot were unable to secure the spellbook or the lock of hair, and they left the following morning seeking more help. John decided they needed more manpower to subdue Nelson, and as he was a large and imposing man, they came back the following evening, tackled him to the ground in his living room. During the struggle, uh, Nelson was beaten and strangled to death. When they realized they had killed the man, they staged the home to look as though it had been robbed. Then they doused the body with kerosene and lit it on fire, hoping the flames would burn down the entire house. This is where the story takes a very strange turn. When they left, the body was engulfed in flames, but soon afterward, the flames mysteriously went out. Two days later, a neighbor discovered the body and alerted authorities. The crime stunned the community, and John was soon picked up as a suspect. The media coverage of the crime focused on John's obsession with Texas, and soon that was all that was needed for the reason of murder. Soon afterwards, many crimes followed were attributed to the supernatural. Folk magic began to be blamed for all that went wrong around Pennsylvania and, of course, were labeled the Hex murderers. Today, the home sits in a well-known area known as Hex Hollow. It's still said to be haunted. It's furnished with many of Milton's original belongings. A portion of the kitchen floor even has been covered over with glass, showcasing the scorched floorboards where John had started the fire. Whether it was the malice behind the murder or the sudden and unexpected nature of the attack, or perhaps the magic of the people involved, a lingering spiritual imprint has been left on a home that is now referred to as Texas. Accounts tell of shadowy figures lurking around the property when no one is there. Others state that if you throw pebbles at the home, the home will throw them right back at you with very accurate aim. Disembodied voices have been reported in forests surrounding the home, and a dog, a black dog with red eyes, a symbol of death, has been spotted roaming the property. This home remembers the tragedy that occurred there, and many believe the house itself is cursed, which is why they refused, why it refused to burn down despite its very flammable construction materials. Since 2007, the descendants of Nelson and its new owners have run the house as a museum to display Nelson's life and his murder. Though the hours of the museum are not published and are inconsistent, it may be that the museum is actually closed, but there are no public announcements about that either. The house, in its tucked away location, is a popular site for, let's just call it, uh, legend tripping, where people like to go and test their wits and their nerves against the magical reported association with the house. You might also refer to it as a site for hazing rituals. 
things for myself. I'll be keeping this little piece of dark magic character guide off my bucket list. <laughs> it is story time, Marty. Nico's decided that it is nap time. It's nap time. Nap time, right in the middle of the show, of course. But we'll see how this works. Mm-hmm. Okay, can we make a nap on my lap? Right. Right. Uh, One of four. This is Nico. He's very comfortable. Biggest boy of all. He's, yeah. a, he's a little over a year old, and he's huge. You will also see uh Lulu was through earlier. She's our one with the tail. Yep. And then we have um You're not Luda. and Vincent. Vincent's over here off camera. Okay. But yes, we have four of them. We have yep, have two boys, the brothers, and we have two semi boys, Great Kitty Cat, the sisters. So yep. They come and go as they please. And apparently Nico has decided it needs to be center stage tonight. But, yeah. yeah, we got people from all over tonight. Yeah, a few more people checked in. Uh, there was one, uh, Death Valley, that I saw. And yeah, so. Haven't been there since I was little. Yeah, so, yeah, we've got people from all over. This is awesome. Glad that you're all here. I did see Patrick Singer. Hi, Patrick. 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 Patrick wants to pet the hellhound again. Uh, uh, Patrick likes it. Okay, yep. So. Patrick likes the spooky animals. Yeah. Alright, well, ah, okay. So this next story, admittedly, yeah, it's a haunted location, but the uh, maybe the murderous aspect of it is a little hyped, but we'll get to that. We're going to move to uh, Cleveland, Ohio, which, you know, a lot of, yeah, you, you get <laughs> Cleveland is really, it, it is the butt of a lot of jokes, but it is a history, a city with a lot of a rich history, and it thrived off the trade and industry for over 200 years. You know, along with much of the country, Cleveland basked in the Gilded Age of the late 1800s, which is often reflected in the opulent architecture of the era. One piece of such architecture is the Franklin Castle. Now, Franklin Castle was built back in 1881, which is our beautiful corporate headquarters here, uh, on Richmond. Are you telling me Cleveland has a Frank Castle? Yeah. A Franklin Castle. <laughs> Franklin Castle. Yep. And it was built by Hans and uh, Lucia Tedman. And it was built on Franklin Boulevard, appropriately enough. Now, Hans was a German immigrant who came to the United States as a younger man with his family back in 1848. By 1855, he was living in Cleveland and managed to quickly establish himself in the grocery business eventually owning his own business that he in turn sold in 1871 for a tidy profit. He used these proceeds to support his family and built their beautiful home on Franklin Boulevard, and then turned to the banking industry where he eventually became the president of United Savings and Banking Company, the part of his business life for which he is best remembered in Cleveland. Unfortunately for uh, Khan and Hans' legacy, I might be pronouncing that wrong. Apologies. Uh, but there are more, uh, there are other more personal rumors that people generally speak of in association with his life. And none of them are as flattering as his business successes. At the beginning of the construction of Franklin Castle, tragedy would come to dominate the life of the pediment. On January 15, 1881, their 15-year-old daughter, Emma, succumbs to diabetes. Not long after, Hans' mother, Rebecca, passed away. 
Over the next three years, the Tedemans would lose three more children, casting a dark pall over the family and powering the rumor mill of Cleveland society. In an attempt to distract his wife from their personal horrors, Hansa turns to home improvement, adding a ballroom on the fourth floor of the house and turrets and gargoyles to the home's facade. As distracting as it might have been, the tragedies never stopped. Louisa died in Salah in 1895 of liver disease, and Hansa sold their home the following year. For the next 13 years, Hansa tried to carry on. He remarried, but the marriage failed only a year later. He lived long enough to see the final two of his six children with Louisa die within months of one another in 1906. Hans himself succumbs to a stroke in 1908. With the entire Tedman family dead, the rain came off the rumor mill and society buzzed with stories of crimes that were supposedly committed by Hans. Stories that were inextricably linked to Franklin Castle where the Tedman family had lived as they suffered so much. Much of the initial chatter dated back a quarter century to the initial construction of Franklin Castle, when four of the Tenement children died one after the next. But the rumors didn't stop there. Talk of various indiscretions to outright murder within the walls of the home gained momentum over the subsequent decades, infecting the legacies of the Tenement, uh, of Tenement and the home that he built. Come 1921, the house was no longer being used as a private residence. For 47 years, the building played host to a series of German and cultural organizations. With Prohibition and World War II occurring during this time, each chapter brought new tales to the home. The home was supposedly used for bootlegging during Prohibition. Even more scandalous and tantalizing, the home was rumored to be the center of a Nazi firing in World War II and was also the site of a mass execution. Rumor. With each piece helping to build an ever-growing story, when the home returns to use as a private residence in 1968, it's little surprise that ghostly tales started to circulate. The Romano family lived in the home for six years, and during that time they attempted multiple exorcisms to try and free the house of their ghostly co-inhabitants. There's a spectral woman in black who watches out through the uppermost turret window who may, uh, many believe was the restless, ever-morning spirit of Louisa Tedman. Other activity associated with Louisa revolves around the room where she died, which is often referred to as the cold room, as it is almost always 10 to 15 degrees cooler than the rest of the house. Then there is the endless stream of activity associated with children, as laughing, crying, and the clatter, uh, chatter of disembodied little voices floods the home along with a pitter-patter of small feet running to and fro. And then there are the swaying chandeliers, faces materializing in the woodwork, and a reoccurring blood stain. It was all enough to drive the Romanos from their home in 1974. They sold the home to a man who claims to have plans to open a church. While the church never opened, there were plentiful fundraising attempts in the subsequent years. The home was open for haunted house tours and overnight stays. There was also a claim made about human bones being found in the home, though many believe that this was a hoax to attempt to create free publicity for the property. From 1980, the reputation of Hans Tedman would also be tainted with a new legend, this one stating that he had murdered his niece Karen and a young servant girl named Rachel. This story arose after the visit of a self-proclaimed medium in March of 1980 who claims that Hans's spirit had confessed the murders to her 
immediately cementing them as a part of the house's mythology. This despite the fact that the record indicates that the niece and the servant girl were complete fabrications. Still, Franklin Castle's growing reputation as the most haunted house in all of Ohio helps to fuel these stories, regardless of the truth or lies behind them. Today, most are inclined to view the talk about Hans Hedeman as just that, talk. They point to his positive legacy as a kind individual who was a benefactor of the community. However, the allure of the dark rumors has proven impossible to shake. Since the mid-1990s, Franklin Castle has been through a series of owners with many ups and downs. There have been a couple of fires, extensive renovations, plans to turn it into a social club, plans to turn it into a museum, and plans to turn it into a home again. No matter the plan, each possible use has had to contend with the building's long, complicated, and haunted history. No matter what ultimately comes of Franklin Castle, there is undoubtedly plenty of fuel for haunting tales for many years to come. If you are interested in hearing more about Franklin Castle, it was featured on the TV show Paranormal Lockdown in 2016 and the TV show Ghost Adventures and the Holster Files in 2020. It was referenced in an episode of American Horror Stories in 2021. We sincerely doubt that this will be the last that we hear about Franklin Castle in the years. I will say before we carry on, um, I do apologize if I'm not keeping up with the comments as much as I'm usually able to. I'm uh, trying to, but it's not working. It's fantastic <laughs> having you all here, but it is a little more than uh, we're used to managing. So if we do, man- do not manage to get back to you during the show, uh, I will follow up after the show. In the meantime, I will try to speak up as well. Also, say hi to Tiffany. Hi, Tiffany. Tiffany is another one of our guys, good friend of ours with uh, Transcend Paranormal as well. Yep. So uh, we've known Tiffany for several years. And, uh, she may be making a little road trip. All right, so we're going to jump back over uh, this way a bit and go to Stanton Island, New York, to the Crusher's Mansion. Uh, it, of course, has not had permanent residence for several years, and this might be doing part of violence that was perpetrated under its roof. Yeah, and also do the spirits that are still said to haunt the location. Sitting on a hill on Staten Island, New York, Balthazar Kreischer built twin mansions for his sons, Edward and Charles, in the late 1880s. The brothers had married sisters, and they happily took to living side by side. For his part, Balthazar had earned his fortune fabricating and selling fireproof bricks. Unfortunately, he didn't get to enjoy seeing his sons in their homes for very long. He died a year later in 1886. And not long after his death, the family brick business fell down hard times. This marked the beginning of a long string of hardships for the Grichers. In 1894, after an apparent argument at the factory, Edward committed suicide by shooting himself in the head. During World War I, just when just about anything German became taboo, most traces of the Grichers family disappeared from the neighborhood, including the large stone tablets at a nearby church that had publicly thanked them for their work in the community. Charles passed away in uh, 1927, and a few years later, his mansion was burned down, leaving only one home of his long-dead brother on the property. Edward's mansion was landmarked in 1968 and added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1982. In the 1990s, the mansion was converted into a restaurant, and that's when visitors reported hearing loud banging, doors slamming shut on their own, 
and pictures being thrown from the walls for no reason. Inexplicable cold spots and icy drafts were felt throughout. At this point, you might be asking, I thought this was about a hot murder house. Where's the murder? Well, we're getting there. At that point in the building's history, many attributed the hauntings to Edward and his wife, Rita, who could not peacefully rest after he had taken his life in such a sudden and violent manner. The restaurant did fail. The mansion eventually fell into the chair until it was purchased in 1999 and restored by Ohio developer Isaac Youngerson. Youngerson was, uh, had bought the five-acre estate with the vision of creating the Kircherville, a 55-plus community that gave a nod to the area's founding family. Fortunately, and even for him, and even more so for a man named Robert McCleavely, the reputation of the Kircher Mansion was about to get much, much as of 2005, the mansion had a caretaker named Joseph Young, a man who would make the deal with the wrong people and use his position for nefarious purposes. Young was reported to be paid $8,000 by a member of the uh, Bonario crime family, and he needed to take care of the problem for that. Young lured the problem, Mr. Robert McSweebly, to the correctional engine and attempted to dispose of the man by strangling him. Well, Robert managed to break free, but Young chased him down, tackled him, stabbed him repeatedly until there was no fight left Robert. For good measure, Young then dragged Robert to nearby pond and held him underwater until the man was undeniably dead. Young and three other monsters then used hackbow to chop up the body and then burned those pieces in the mansion's permit. It took an entire year before the FBI was finally able to fully investigate the murder. By that time, the furnace in the basement had been removed from the building. However, enough evidence was recovered to sentence Joseph Young to life in prison in 2008. As for the vision of the senior living community, well, he succeeded in restoring the mansion itself, but delays in obtaining permits coupled with an unstable market led him to make a difficult decision to abandon the project. In the years since, the home has been maintained and used for a variety of purposes, but none of them permanent. The home has been used as a recording studio. Several videos have been filmed in the mansion, which shows such as the Boardwalk Empire and Gotham having been filmed there. Producers have reported that some of the recordings made at the house mysteriously were erased after they were made. The home is also home to summer concerts, when perhaps most appropriately, and has served as a haunted house attraction during the Halloween season. Through it all, the reports of paranormal activity have continued to run rampant, with the spirits of Edward and Frida taking their leading roles at the mansion and on the surrounding property for many years. In addition to the tragic couple, there has been a younger boy or boys seen running about in serious clothing. This may be the spirit of one of the Christian children that did not make it to adulthood. Charles and Edward were not the only sons of Balthazar, and they also had a brother, Henry, who passed away at the age of six. There are also two other half-siblings from the second marriage who died in their early youth. Could these be any of the children who still think the mansion and the surrounding property is their home to this day? Along with the haunting, some the rumors that may or may not be credible. Some claim there is a spirit of a murdered German cook lingering in the kitchen, banging pots and pans about. There are also those who claim to have heard screaming children in locked closets, 
how much of this is actual paranormal activity versus a dramatization for the haunted house attraction. Well, that's up for today. As for Robert, his ghost is yet to be spotted on the property, but his gruesome demise undoubtedly locks down the mansion's reputation as one of Staten Island's most haunted houses. Having a technical difficulty. Okay. Yeah, but I was trying to share uh, a link to uh, some basic information about the, the Kretcher place. Do we need Patrick? Patrick's really good at doing that. Yeah, it doesn't want you know, me uh, to share the link. But um, the, the house is beautiful. It is. Uh, absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. And there, I did, when we were researching this, I did find some uh, pictures of the literally like twin mansions side mm-hmm. by side on this property. And um, it's kind of crazy to think about this. This is like on Staten Island because it looks like it's could be out in the middle of the country, in the middle yeah. of nowhere. But think about also where they were building it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, we have twin houses right down the street from us, so. We do. We do. But. Yeah, I mean, this, this is... But they're not murder houses. They're not murder houses. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it's interesting. And it was another pair of brothers that married sisters. This is true. Yeah, it always seems to be brothers that married sisters. I mean, look at um the Macy brothers. Mm-hmm. Married sisters, and they had twin houses up in the island. Yep. We've been asked about the nature of our company. Oh, ah. so what do we do? <laughs> um, our bread and butter is ghost tours here in Richmond, Virginia. Yes. So, uh, yeah, what we do day in and day out is pretty much focus on the haunted history of Richmond. That's what we do to make a living. And uh, It is my full-time job. I retired from teaching to do this full-time. Um, the company has been around since 2005 uh, and have four uh, continual walking tours plus a couple of special events, and we're actually looking at adding a fifth tour after October. Yeah. Um, so that is the bread and butter, and as we said, when – COVID hit, I had to stop working because the tours are not allowed to operate. And I still made to go do a Facebook Live show and start researching and putting my English degree to work. And so I dove down the rabbit holes of research, and this is what came out. Yeah. Our first show was Haunted Ireland back yep. there in uh, 2020, and we did uh, the shows weekly uh, at first. And uh, then once we were able to start doing tours again a few months later, we went to every other week. And found that we really enjoyed doing this type of stuff, and so we kept doing it. Yeah, and here we it are allowed tonight. me to dive into a lot of history on haunted locations that's not here in Virginia. So Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, we love we love our haunted history here in Richmond and in Virginia at large. But um, let's just say that this has been absolutely fascinating for us as well. It we, definitely has created a big bucket list of things we want to go see. We, we love spooky stuff near and far, and... Uh, Prime example, I guess, about a month and a half ago, we did an episode, Haunted Alaska. Yeah. And then two weeks later, we were in Alaska, and we went to see several of the locations that we talked about on the show. And that's pictures, because that's what we do. And, it was awesome. and thank you, Patrick. Patrick managed to share the, uh, the link to the house. I don't know why Facebook won't let me do that. In any case, but yeah, that is our, our bread and butter. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about exactly what we do on our our ghost tours, uh, hauntofrichmond.com. So that'll uh, bring you up, bring up our website. You can see all our various offerings that we have there. And, uh, of course, well, well, we also have the Facebook page, but you knew that because you're here tonight. So, um, So, yeah, not actually in the gear because I always try to wear something that's 
appropriate to what we're doing tonight. Well, I have on the leggies that say coffee because murder's wrong. Yep. Yeah. I got my, my cat with a cat. Yeah. Murder cat. <laughs> I'm wearing a Michael Myers costume. Hey, that's cool. You guys don't know. <laughs> I could be lying. And I do have a Stranger Things shirt on because, you know, the Creole family house is definitely a murder house. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, we are going to go. We got, uh, we're not done yet. We got, not done yet. We've got a couple more murder houses for you. So, and thank you, Patrick. Yeah. So, thank you so much. So we are going to go to a location, a state, that we have actually rarely touched on before, if at all. I'm not sure. Have we ever gone to Idaho before? No, but I have a whole research folder. I have a whole disc about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So this may be about murder and stuff like that. We're going to keep it PG-13. <laughs> so, anyways. Um, so, yeah, Boise, Idaho, because is there anything else in Idaho? Idaho? Uh, my aunt. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I, mean, of state parks. I couldn't name a single other town or city in Idaho. One Chick-fil-A. Okay. <laughs> I'm not surprised. It's like that one. And it's got to be in Boise, too, right? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So now, if you are familiar with Boise, and actually, I don't know if we have anybody here from Boise tonight or from Idaho. If I, you are, let us know. And if yeah. you visit this location. I, I, <laughs> Uh, Patrick says good potatoes are not in Idaho. And yes, Rexburg, which, okay. which, which doesn't mean anything to me, but I'll take yeah. the word for it. I can so, look it up on the map. Um, now, <laughs> if you're familiar with Boise, you may have heard of the murder house at the corner of Linden and Leadville. The house, a large craftsman style built in 1910, has been the subject of many grandiose urban legends. Rumors range from a crazed murderer who killed and dismembered numerous people in the house to stories of blood dripping from the basement walls to the ghostly apparition of a woman in 19th century clothes staring out the front window at night. Well, many of the rumors are total fiction. We'll get that out of the way now. Total fiction. There is some truth to the crazed murderer story. A tale so grotesque that it certainly played a role in helping to spin off more outrageous and horrifying stories that stretched credibility. That said, the truth of what happened at 805 Linden Street is probably one of Boise's most grotesque murder cases. Court documents state that on the night of June 30, 1987, an altercation broke out between three men, Preston Muir, Darian Cox, and Daniel Rogers, the owner of 805 Linden. Preston Muir was shot in the shoulder as a result of the altercation. Attempting to flee, Muir ran to a nearby house and pleaded at the door for help. But before anyone opened the door, Rogers and Cox retrieved Muir and dragged him back into Rogers' house. Once inside, Muir was fatally shot in the head. Soon after the shooting, the neighbor of the house that Muir ran to for help phoned police and reported the suspicious activity. The neighbor told dispatchers about the frantic man, the men who came to retrieve him, and what looked like blood on the door. Despite the call, police did not respond promptly. Having murdered Muir, Rogers and Cox dismembered his body and placed the pieces into plastic bags. The black bags were then placed into the trunk of a car, and Rogers and Cox drove a couple hours away to Brownlee Reservoir to dump the body parts. The remaining evidence, gloves and the plastic bags, were thrown into a dumpster behind a Meridian, Ohio convenience store a few miles to the west of Boise. Meridian, that's another town. <laughs> okay. So, 
In the morning, uh, police responded to 805 Linden, but only after a second call by the concerned neighbor. There, they discovered bloodstains on the street and several neighboring doors. When they didn't get a response at 805 Linden, they received a uh, search warrant and discovered the crime scene. Cox and Rogers were apprehended and charged with murder, but the reasoning behind their grotesque crime remained murky. According to court documents, the three men had been hanging out earlier that evening trying to locate Rogers' uh, recently stolen gun. They drove around Boise trying to find the apartment of the person they believe stole the gun. The trio returned to the house on Linden Street around midnight, and that is when the deadly altercation broke out. After complying with police and giving a detailed account of the incident, Cox was given a lesser sentence, accomplice to murder, of which he served six years. Rogers, being found guilty of murder, was sentenced to life in prison. Over the years, numerous people have lived in the murder house. Several people rented it out during the 1990s, and the house was even, even spent time at the Boise, Boise State University frat house in the 2000s. Although there haven't been any official paranormal investigations that have occurred in the house, most people do agree that there is something extremely unsettling about the place, specifically the basement. A number of people have come forth over the years, individuals who have either lived in the house or were neighbors with creepy tales about the residents. One resident named Dan was hanging out in his upstairs room with a friend who, for the purposes of the story, we will call B. Dan and B were reminding their business when they heard someone walk up the stairs. They didn't think much of it, thinking it was a roommate, but then they heard it again without anyone having gone back downstairs. Getting up to check it out, they thought that someone might be trying to break into the house. They checked everywhere but found nothing, so they went down to the front porch to hang out and watch. The hope was that if anyone was trying to mess with the house, they would be deterred by their presence on the porch. It was late, close to midnight, and Dan kept seeing shadows out of the corner of his eyes. He thought he might have just been tired until B mentioned the shadows, too. Their thoughts started to turn from possible intruders to who knows what. Stepping out into the yard, they looked back at the house, and in the upstairs window was what looked like a black, oily mass. It sunk back into the room, but soon after reappeared in a mirror inside by the front door. What happened next almost defies explanation. As Dan says, the mask passed through him before finally disappearing for good, leaving him with the feeling that ice had run through him. Oh, thank you. Dan and B ran down to the nearby gas station and called their roommates to tell them to get out of the house. For Dan's part, he never went back to the house again. B stayed on at the house a while longer, but having avoided the up and up close and personal encounters that Dan was subjected to, he wasn't quite as shaken by the event. Dan put up with a lot of teasing after that encounter, but he sticks to the story, saying that it was the most unsettling thing that he has ever lived through. In another incident, a neighbor witnessed a woman in an upstairs window who looked to be banging on the window and screaming. However, the whole encounter was devoid of sound. It does make one wonder which is worse, a noisy, panicked scream or witnessing that same panicked scream in absolute silence. Many others who have crossed paths with the house have described its appearance as that of a feral animal, and a few people are, and, excuse me, and few people are willing to enter the basement, particularly alone. 
While the whole home has an off-putting, chilling vibe, the basement carries a darkly spirited and emotional weight that few are willing or able to bear. By all accounts, the home passed into the possession of a relative of Daniel Rogers shortly after he was sentenced to prison. This individual adamantly refuses to talk to anyone about what happened at the house or the reported haunting. Aside from the testimony of those who have rented the home or live nearby, little other evidence exists for the paranormal activity here. Perhaps one day the house will pass out of the ownership of the Rogers family, but until that time we will be left to wonder what lingers on inside 805 Linden Street and if the unfortunate Preston Muir is amongst them. <laughs> huh? That's her comment. Uh, Which haunts her looks a bit like a massive train. Boy. <laughs> okay. All right. We are good to carry on. I think this is, this our, is our last one. Last one for the evening. Uh, and I couldn't do murder houses without including this one. You're probably all familiar with this, especially if you are an American Horror Story fan. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this, this one, it does admittedly kind of stretch the definition of my show, but it fits. It fits. It fits. It's a classic, and yeah. We have somehow, miraculously, we have not talked about it before. No. So we will bring it up now. <laughs> Go. So this is the H.H. Holmes Murder Castle. Um, as Chris said, it stretches the definition because it was, of course, a World's Fair hotel. It was sometimes called a castle or a mansion, so we decided to include its grim history uh, in the story because, well, it's too good to ignore. Chances are you have heard of this place as it is the most infamous building in American history. It was a large house in Chicago in the late 1800s, and it was built and owned by Mr. H.H. H. Holmes. If you're unfortunate enough to check into this establishment during the World Fair in 1893, you might run up a flight of stairs and find that it leads nowhere. There's a good chance that you would open doors and only see solid brick. Maybe you'd enter a bedroom and suddenly smell gas seeping in. If you had the sense to try to run, you would realize you were locked in. Even if you could open the door, you probably couldn't find your way out of the house. And before long, you met your gruesome end. Or at least that's how the story of the H.H. Holmes house goes. As one of America's first known serial killers, H.H. Holmes became infamous not only for his crimes, but also for the legendary murder hotel in Chicago. This mysterious building was initially believed to be a normal hotel and just a way for Holmes to make money during the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. But a police investigation later revealed something far more sinister was going on. While it remains unknown how many people Holmes murdered in his house of horrors, he once boasted of killing 27 people. However, some estimates claim the actual number may have been as low as 9 or as high as 200. In recent years, some historians have cast doubt on whether Holmes' house was really a murder castle at all. While there's no doubt that Holmes was a serial killer, Experts have suggested that some of the most sordid details of his home, like the homemade gas chambers and trap doors, may have been mere products of bombastic journalism. But at the end of the day, the only, only the man himself ever knew all the secrets of the hotel, 
and how many people actually died within its walls. The Holmes first came to Chicago in 1886, leaving behind more of uh, more than one previous life. He was born Herman Wester Mudgett. I changed my name. <laughs> well, let's just say the previous scandals gave him a reason to change his name other than the name. Like in college, when he worked in the anatomy lab and mutilated cadavers to defraud <laughs> life insurance companies. <clears throat> or when he was the last person to have been seen with a missing little boy in New York. Or when he worked as a pharmacist in Philadelphia and a customer died after taking his pills. After all these incidents, Mudgett simply skipped town and eventually changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes. Soon after his arrival in Chicago, Holmes got a job at a drugstore on 63rd Street, and using his knowledge of medicine and his charming personality to secure his position. Holmes was fashionable, bright, and likable. In fact, he was so likable that at one point in his life, he was married to three unknowing women at once. In 1887, he bought an empty lot across from the street from the store where he worked and began construction on a three-story building, which he said would be used for apartments and shops. The structure was ugly and large and contained more than 100 rooms and stretching for an entire block. But Chicago was a city on the rise, and new construction was going up all over in this part of the American Midwest. After all, Chicago was perfectly situated on the shores of Lake Michigan, and the central hub for the expansive railroad networks that crisscrossed the nation, all extending like spokes on a wheel. For his mansion, Holmes planned for the first floor to contain an entire block of storefronts that he would be able to rent out for the flood of new businesses opening up in the city. The third floor would contain, uh, contain apartments for new residents looking to make it big. Eerily, some of those unsuspecting residents may have eventually become Holmes' victims. Those uh, victims got to see the second floor, the one that was allegedly full of asphyxiation chambers, mazes, and hidden stairs. And especially the unlucky victims made it down to the basement. Well, that hit an elaborate horse for which Holmes' house is now famous. Throughout the building's construction, Holmes apparently switched builders and architects frequently so that no one involved was able to realize the gruesome end goal of all of its odd parts. The house was completed in 1892, and by 1894, police would be exploring its windy passages while Holmes was behind bars. At first, authorities were confused by what they found. There were hinged walls and false partitions. Some rooms had five doors and others had none. Secret airless chambers were found underneath floorboards, and iron plate-lined walls appeared to stifle all sound. As for Holmes' own apartment, it had a trap door in the bathroom, which opened up to reveal a staircase that led to a windowless cubicle. Inside the cubicle, there was allegedly a large chute that tunneled through to the basement and, well, needless to say, it was not used for dirty laundry. One notable room was lined with gas fixtures. Here, Holmes would apparently seal his victims in, flip a switch in an adjacent room, and wait for the horrors to unfold. Another chute was found nearby. All the doors and some of the steps were connected to an intricate alarm system. Whenever somebody stepped into the hall or headed downstairs, a buzzer sounded in Holmes' bedroom. Again, some of these descriptions may have been exaggerated or even invented by the newspapers of the era, but to someone who met their end in Holmes' murder hotel, 
Do the details really matter that much? After all, if you're dead, you're dead. Now, the first clue about the bizarre floor plans through purpose came to the pops in a pile of bones. Most of the bones were from animals, but some were human. They were so small that they almost certainly belonged to a child, one that was no more than six or seven years old. And when authorities descended into the cellar, scoping the building in horrors, it was finally revealed. Beside a blood-soaked operating table, they found a woman's clothes. Another surgical surface was nearby, along with a crematorium, an array of medical tools, a bizarre torture device, and shells of disintegrating acid. Homes of fascination with dead bodies had apparently lasted long past college, as had his surgical skills. After dropping his victims down the chutes, he reportedly dissected them, cleaned them, and sold the organs or skeletons to medical institutions or on the black market. Though the mansion didn't look inviting in the least, it was unlikely that any of the victims were dragged into its death. They entered on their own volition, likely enchanted by the owner's flattery or apparent affluence. In some cases, they may have even been his employees. During his two short years in the Capitol Homes, hired more than 150 women to work as his stenographers. A few of them were known to be his mistresses as well, whom sometimes photographed his favorites. They were young, beautiful, and trusting of this gentleman in the big and unfamiliar city. As a city on the rise that it was well-connected thanks to the railway hub, Chicago undoubtedly had a fresh flow of people coming in and out of Holmes' mansion. But despite the well-connected women who went missing under his employment, suspicions of murder weren't what Holmes did Holmes in. People come and go all the time in the big city without notice. And before the age of advanced technology, it's especially hard to trace them. So the disappearance of the young women working under homes could have always been excused as them simply moving on or heading back home. Ultimately, theft, poorly planned financial schemes were what to the arrest of homes in Boston on November 17th of 1894. After decades of criminal activity, Holmes was behind bars. And it was only after he was jailed that the enormity of his crimes became known. He was linked to one murder. That number quickly grew to nine. Holmes would go on to give several confessions, each of them with conflicting accounts and numbers. None of them could be confirmed beyond doubt, as Holmes had so effectively disposed of the bodies in vats of acid or his human-sized stove. Regardless, Holmes spent the rest of his life behind bars, passing away just a couple of years later. As for those investigating what happened at his murder mansion, strange fates befell many of the people connected to the case of, home, of the Holmes Hotel. The man who had initially tipped off the police through his illegal dealings was shot by a Chicago police officer. The warden at the prison where Holmes had uh, been held killed himself. The office of the district attorney who had argued the famous case caught on fire. And Patrick Quinlan, a former caretaker of the castle, who after Holmes knew the most about the haunted building, died by suicide in 1914. He left a one-sentence note, I could not sleep. Many believe that he had aided Holmes in his evil enterprises at the murder castle, and those close to Quinlan told reporters that the death had been long in coming. For years they had said Quinlan had been haunted by his past life with Holmes, plagued with insomnia, driven to the last edge, and then finally over. So 
Some still say it was Holmes himself that had haunted Quinlan and that of the monster of 63rd Street had finally gone away, taking with him the one person who could have revealed all of the secrets. As for the murder castle itself, it's no longer standing. In 1895, the mansion was gutted by a fire, which may have been started by two men who were seen entering the building at night. The remains of the structure were torn down in 1938. As uh, today, the home's house itself is the site of an unassuming post office. <laughs> What's that look? The post office has enough issues as it is. Our post office. We don't. Most places don't have the issues that we have here. That's, that's another horror story in and of itself, which we won't. I digress. Anyway, the post office is a modest, somewhat institutional yellow brick building, one of many built during the New Deal era under FDR. The Chicago Transit Authority Green Line runs on an elevated trestle just beyond the post office, while a weathered concrete freight train embankment runs along to the east. Post office does not stand perfectly on the footprint of the murder mansion. That would have encompassed the entire eastern part of the post office's footprint. Uh, and, of course, the grassy knoll that separates the post office from the freight train. It seems that the site of the murder mansion may have clung on to some of the horrific and negative energy associated with the building. Postal employees who were interviewed for ghost stories special associated with the mansion attested to the strange going-ons in the building especially the basement. Now, some people believe that it actually shares a foundational wall with the original mansion, which stood on the corner next to the current post office's structure. Many employees refuse to enter the basement at all. Only limited parts of it are used for any sort of storage. They frequently barricade the doors that lead to the older sections of the basement that share the walls in the room with the demolished mansion. One employee who did enter the basement for something or other, <laughs> shared a chilling story of hearing the sound of the basement and poking her head around a corner to see if her colleague was there. She called out, but heard no response and saw nothing down the hall but a row of chairs lined against the wall. A minute later, she returned to the hall. The chairs had all been stacked up on top of each other. Other employees have seen that the apparitions of a young woman in the building were on the grassy property where the mansion once stood. And the sound of a woman singing or humming is also heard in various parts of the current building. Most compelling of all have been the experiences of Holmes' own descendant, Jeff Mudgett, who has visited the site numerous times, discovering the gruesome ancestor in his history line. Attempting to make peace with this dreadful reality of his life, Mudgett wrote a book, Bloodstains, in hopes that it would help heal the family lines of his grandfather's victims. Budget had no intention of stopping with the book. Part of his plans included an examination at the murder mansion site and the placement of a memorial plaque there. When Budget first visited the site of the murder mansion, he experienced severe physical and emotional effects from the visit. Before entering the basement of the post office, he was not a believer in the paranormal. But when he came out an hour later, well, let's just say his world was tilted. He felt the spirits of his grandfather's victims crying out to him for the aging bricks of the old mansion foundation. The legacy of Holmes and his murder mansion is still largely prevalent in the capital crime involving serial killers. In fact, it's likely that several mass murders may have patterned some aspects of Holmes' horrific house in their own form of body disposal. 
1991, Buffalo Bill from the silent, uh, film Silence of the Lambs was partially modeled after Adrian's phone. More specifically, though, it was the killer's basement, the maze of a specifically patterned murder castle, complete with torture pits. It was here in the film where Buffalo Bill stalked Clarice Starling in an all-too-familiar manner, the same way in which Holmes also stalked his victim through the endless maze of his murder man. Holmes and his murder mansion have been serialized in Eric Lawson's historical fiction, the account of the tragic events titled Devil in the White City. It's also been turned into a miniseries uh, with the same name for Hulu, starting Keanu Reeves with Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio as producers. This will light you in for your murder mission, uh, mansion affectionate. Something to put for later. Yeah, that, that's like brand new news. That was yeah. like only came out like the last week or two they announced yeah. that show. Yeah. So that's going to be amazing. I will watch that. Because Keanu Reeves has never done TV. He's never done like I mean, yeah, Hulu's not easy. It's streaming. Yes, I get that. But he's never done like a TV show or something like that. Never so, had to. Never had to, no. Yeah. Doesn't know what he wants. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the fact that he's Got on board for this project, speaks volumes, and how can you not love Keanu Reeves? Yeah, just saying. Keanu Reeves. But, uh, yeah. And so, the man knows how to murder things. <laughs> yeah, they look at the John Wick. John theory. Wick. Oh, yeah, so amazing. Anyways, but yes, kind of digress a little bit. Yeah. But thank you all so much for watching tonight. Yeah, and go back in two weeks and watch again. Yeah, for, for those of you that survived to the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks is Venice, Italy, haunted yeah. Venice. And this one's fun because it's a lot more vignette style than what we've been doing, where we only do like five. There's a lot more stories this time. Because um, I I wanted to get to so many of them, they they were pretty cool. Yep. So uh, so yeah, lots lots of little ones. So tonight we had five stories. Yeah. I think for Venice we're gonna have like fifteen. Yeah. So as I said, little vignettes. Yeah, much, much shorter individual stories, but we're looking forward to that. Then two weeks after that mm-hmm. is Pirates. Yes, Pirates. Like pirates. Woohoo! That's perfect. Grace yourself. Yep. I was raised in a household where we told pirates. Yep. Yeah, so this is actually Lee's episode. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, if you uh, if there's one thing that people love more than pirates, it's dead pirates. Yes. So that's going to be fun. And then two weeks after that, Given the audience here, given the uh, affection, if you will, for murder houses, perhaps Gates to Hell is up your alley. That's going to be a month and a half from now. So uh, you can go ahead. All all of those are posted on our events page on Facebook. So you can go and check it out there. Um, Set it up on your calendar so you're reminded. Yep. So if you enjoyed the show tonight, please feel free to... You know, of course, you're, you're here, so thank you. But, you know, feel free to share it, you know, spread the news. We, we love doing these shows. We're looking forward to doing more of them in the future. And if it's your first time tuning in and you enjoyed what you watch, you can go back and literally watch over, what, probably over 60 shows now? Yep, live. Yeah, we, since we've been doing these for a couple of years now, we have quite the library. You can check them out under the videos tab on our Facebook page. And I am very slowly, admittedly, trying to transfer them over to uh, YouTube as well. I think I got, like, the first 10 or 12 episodes on Aww. YouTube. <laughs> so, yeah, it does take a while to do the 
transfer from yeah. Facebook to YouTube. So. Got to download the entire episode, then upload it to YouTube. It's time consuming, but it is a work in progress when I have a few minutes to go ahead and get a few minutes. It takes almost like a half hour per episode. Yeah. So, so when I'm not researching, he does it. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, and uh, so, yeah, let's see. I think there were a couple questions. Uh, yes, yeah, so are there spots remaining for Key West? Is it too late to sign up? There technically are spots still remaining. As far as whether it's too late to sign up is a good question. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with what Alex is talking about, we are doing a paranormal investigation trip to Key West the first weekend of December of this year. Unfortunately, come the end of July, just like a couple of weeks ago, we did have to release our block of hotel rooms. So I don't know if you can still sign up. I know that you cannot book on the website anymore, which is hauntofkeywest.com. But if you reach out, um, you can go there and get uh, hauntofkeywest.com. You can get a hold of our travel agent, Holiday Maker Travel. They're the ones that are helping us with hotels and stuff like that, and they would be the ones to um, do that email to, too. Yeah, you can send an email to them, see if rooms are still available, and they would be able to help you make a reservation if rooms are still available. But we're looking forward to that. That's going to be a, a, a weekend of paranormal camaraderie, if you will. We're going to have a paranormal tour and investigation of the East Martello Museum down there in Key West, which is where Robert the Doll resides. If, uh, if you're not familiar with Robert the Doll, look him up. He's all over the Internet. He very, was featured in our first Creepy Dolls episode. Yep. Very, very interesting character, which we're very fond of. And, and there's only one spirit in this old there's store. There's There's dozens there. And the whole thing's going to be led by uh, David Sloan, which, if that name's not familiar to you, Let's just say that he is the godfather of all things haunted in Key West. He moved there in the mid-1990s and started the first ghost tour company in Key West. Uh, since then, ghost tours have proliferated down there. There's a lot of them, but uh, he has a lock in on the East Martello Museum and the Robert Dahl experience, and we're going to pleasure to have a private experience with him there on Saturday night, that's I think December 3rd, yep. and then on Sunday night we have uh, uh, rented out the Autobahn house, which um, despite its name, John Autobahn never actually stayed there, but it has a very interesting story and history behind that, uh, which uh, let's just say haunted location, fascinating history, beautiful house, and we're going to have it for like five or six hours that night. So you can uh, actually check out their website. They do have some video on their website from other investigations, so you can see things with that happen there. Uh, so yeah, and we will. Chris and I will be bringing equipment uh, for that night. So even if you don't have equipment, uh, you'll be able to use what we bring. Um, David will be providing equipment for the night at the fort. Yep. Although we're welcome to bring our equipment as well, yep. and there will be some equipment available. Um, so yeah. If you're interested in that, hauntsofkeywest.com. And, I'm, again, I I'm can't promise that availability is still there, but best bet, reach out to our travel agents again, which the link is available to email them via hauntsofkeywest.com. Yes. So there's that. And then one other question that Alex had. Um, how long does it take for us to do these? 
Um, you usually spend several hours yeah. gathering the stories and putting them into a rough album. I have a research Pinterest board that is enormous. Yeah. Um, and I have it partially organized of places and, and scripts that we've already done, and then I have a whole plethora of pins that you know, that there are, you know, top ten most common road trip haunts, those types of things, where it's a variety of different stories that I've, I've liked them, and, but I haven't thrown them into a script yet. Yeah. Um, so I will probably spend um, three to four days on one script just doing the research uh, and going down that rabbit hole and, and getting the first edit done, and then Chris comes yeah. back um, a day or two later uh, or added another day or two, depending on his work day and edits everything. All told, you spend probably anywhere four to eight hours putting the initial script together, and I probably spend anywhere between five and ten hours editing the script for length, content, and stuff like that. So yeah. I follow a bunch of haunted um, pages, and you know they'll post various stories. I'm like, oh, pin that for later. Yeah. So each episode, I would say, collectively takes us anywhere between 10 and 20 hours to put together. Yeah. And, uh, but we love doing it. We do. And, and, I mean, like with our creepy doll, that's going to be coming up again as well. Um, part three is coming. <laughs> yep. Well, but, yeah, some of the scripts, admittedly, like shooting fish in a barrel. They're really easy. The information's readily available. It doesn't take long for us to put it together and edit it. Other ones we dive a little deeper for. And uh, it usually winds up coming down to the fact that um, we yeah. come up with the idea for the show. The Hellgates is a great example and of that then, one. Yeah, come up with the idea. Then we start researching it. And sometimes, it, yeah. <laughs> um, what was, it was an Irish show that inspired Hellgates, wasn't it? It's the Hellfire book. Yeah. The Hellfire uh, book. yeah. Exactly. Because, I mean, the, the real life Hellfire yeah. book. Yeah. Which was recently brought to mind because of the Hellfire Club in Stranger Things. Hey, man. Yeah. But Whatever yeah, that's, education. That, that's what originally started with that one, and then I started diving into a whole bunch of other portals and, you know. And Matthew. So <laughs> that one, that's that one you already have. Yeah. And that, that, <laughs> is, that is going to be international. Yeah, so. that one is international. It's got to be. And that yeah. one will be in October. Uh, no, that's the end of September. Oh, that's right. Creepy Dolls is October. We got, well, Creepy Dolls Volume 3 yep. is going to be mid-October. So whereas we normally do these shows every two weeks. October, um, we only do it once because it's October. October, <laughs> we are planned. crazy busy. So, um, yes, we'll be just doing one, which normally just means that I think we'll probably do it two weeks after Hellgate. But then yeah, it's it'll the be middle like, of October. It's in the middle of October. <laughs> no um, I think it's the 17th. I think that's the right date. Um, but that's when Creepy Dolls will be. And then once we get back in November and things have calmed down, we'll start doing the bi week or the, the two weeks. Yeah. So, and, and Alex does say, yeah, thank you for doing this. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that uh, so much work goes into them. Um, yeah, it, it, we're happy to do it. it but it, it, it's, it's not just like a one and done. Mm-hmm. For, for a lot of the stuff that we do share, it winds up becoming, it winds up being like something going on our bucket list of places to visit. Yep. Um, and we, it does enrich our knowledge of mm-hmm. the paranormal 
near and far. Yes. So, to give you an idea, next year Chris and I are going on a cruise to Norway. There will be a haunted Norway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've I already started have gathering ideas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've already. We don't know. I like saga stories. <laughs> <laughs> so I um, I've already started the research. So little yeah. since I want to say how. But but it gives us it gives us stuff to talk about, and uh, I I can't tell you how often we've. Um, been giving our ghost tours here in Richmond, and somebody will ask us about something. Another place. And another like, place. Oh, we can tell you about this. Yep. And so, yeah, we will. A story that Richmond just doesn't provide. We don't have a lot of malicious spirits. No, no. About malicious spirits. We're we're going on five full-fledged walking tours here in Richmond, and admit what there's like two locations. stories that have malicious ghosts. Yeah. So we are running a little thin on malicious ghosts here in Richmond, but with our research, we have come up with quite the plethora of stories about. Yeah, <laughs> there are a lot out there. But uh, yeah, so I mean, it's uh, it's stuff that we love to be able to share. Um, some of it we can, um, you know, tie parallel in and say, yeah, we got this here in Richmond, and then also this other place out here has a very similar story or similar type of haunting, that type of thing. So yeah, we we love doing it. It's uh it's I would love. Hmm? I would love to do an Edgar Allan Poe ghost thing. Oh, that that's way. Like, around. Yeah. <laughs> we we talked about him in Charleston. Uh huh. Yeah. He's um, he's all the way up. Everybody. Pennsylvania to Charleston. Yeah. Everybody loves to New York. Uh-huh. Everybody loves to claim that. And justifiably so. I mean, he got around. He, he he did travel a lot in his life. And well, if you if you want a ghost, Edgar Allan Poe's got to be right up there with people you might want haunting your location. So, yeah, people love to uh, claim Edgar, but he's a Richmonder. Let's not. Yeah, he he is a Richmonder. Let's not. Uh, we 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 won't give that up. Uh, he spent more time here than he got anywhere else during his life. And he claims himself as a Richmonder. Yeah. So, but yeah. So I mean, that's that's what um that's what goes on with their shows. I mean, that's behind the scenes stuff, if you will. We we love doing this. Glad to have you here mm-hmm. watching us. That makes it uh, certainly helps to make it worthwhile. And now we've seen our new decorations that we put up as you can see. Miss Elvira is up there finally. Yes. We so we we managed to uh, do uh, get this um just a few couple of weeks ago at the Scares the Care Convention in Williamsburg. Uh, admittedly, now, um, last time that we chatted with y'all, we had just gotten back from those scares and care convention in Williamsburg. Uh, if you have not heard yet, unfortunately, it was the last convention. Scares and Care is still very much a charitable organization, but the costs versus the benefit of running the full-fledged convention just didn't make sense for them anymore, and they have since announced that that will be the last convention. Yes. So there will for the be a con, anyway. Yeah, they, the, they still have their author con next April. Yep. That's going to happen in Williamsburg. Um, they have announced their holiday dinner already. Uh, they will have other events, uh, more regional events, is what they're going to be working towards, so they can reach more places. Uh, and we are actually going to start working with them on a regional event here in Richmond. So yep. that that is in the preliminary stages. Once we get more things. Uh, settled, we will announce more with that, but we are. It will, will you say preliminary? 
We're, we're literally uh, preliminary. We're talking <laughs> probably going to be three plus years. So, it, it'll take a little bit of time permitting and all that to get this event going in Richmond. Yeah, but so don't hold your breath. <laughs> it, it, it started in the works, and we'll announce when we have definite. Yeah. Um, what else? Oh, they're going to be at MonsterCon in um, Charlotte. That was Gettysburg. No, that's, no, that's creature, creature, creature Feature, yeah. which is, that's in just a couple weeks, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Gettysburg, Creature Feature Weekend, they will have a presence there, so you can go uh, visit them there. They will still be going to conventions. And at, doing silent auction back conventions. But uh, they, will not, having their own. they will not be running their own anymore. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. So, but amazing, uh, amazing charitable organization. We're going to be still continue to be proud supporters of them, uh, just no more uh, charity weekends. Yeah. Uh, we will do our tour for them in October. Yeah, um, that's right. On the 22nd? Yeah, Saturday, October 22nd. Uh, it's going to be kind of more or less our run-of-the-mill Churchill Chillers tour, but anybody who comes out for that, your full ticket purchase will be going to Scares the Care. So. Yeah. We hope that a lot of people come out for that. We have enough, uh, we're planning on having enough capacity to actually run two full Churchill Chillers tours that evening. And if they both sell out, it should be a very nice payday for Scares of the Care. And so we're hoping that that'll be a thing. Um, but uh, and you can go and you can see it on our website, on our calendar. Uh, there is specifically a note on the Churchill Chillers tour for October 22nd that it is the um, Scares they care benefit tour, so you can go check that out. All right, so with that, thank you again for everybody who came tonight. I hope you join us. Hi, yes, you may. Hey guys, uh, Show don't your forget. Show your face. Uh, no. no. <laughs> again, leave them on one of our guys over here. What's up, guys? Uh, so VA Comic Con this weekend at the Turner Way, James Horick, for those of you who are comic fans. He is a big contributor to the Evil Dead comic book. He's going to be there signing things, and he's going to be pretty cool. Um, we also have a lot of really great cosplayers coming as well, so definitely check us out. Mm -hmm. And Lee will be in cosplay. I will be at E. Ash from mm -hmm. Evil Dead. Because, you know, James is going to be there. <laughs> we have seen some bits and pieces from this uh, cosplay. I was working on it while I was here. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. So, yes, but... So yeah, um, we're, we're, we're really kind of <laughs> rambling now. Yeah. But uh, I will say one final thing before we do depart. If you think of any questions or have any comments or anything like that that you want to add in after the fact, if you think 10, 5, 10 minutes down the road or even tomorrow that, oh, I wish I'd asked that on the live stream last night, go ahead and message us on Facebook. You can just drop us a message. Happy to chat with you at any time. Um, doesn't have to just be here during the live chat. So um, yeah. Go ahead, drop us a note. Happy to hear from you, and uh, we hope that you'll tune back in in a couple weeks. But thank you for uh, making this by far our most well-attended show that we've ever done. Yeah, yeah thank you. So, and yeah. thank you, Alex, for dropping that link. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So in the meantime, everybody have a good night, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Bye, y'all. Night. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.